It was obvious in 1971 and even in 1958 that AI programs suffered from a lack of generality. It is still obvious and now there are many more details. Hello, my name is Eric Normand. Welcome to my podcast. Today we are reading from the 1971 Turing Award Lecture by John McCarthy. It's a little more complicated than that, um, but he won in 1971 and he gave a lecture and it actually wasn't published in 1972. Usually they're published the next year. I guess he didn't like what he said. He didn't like his how the talk turned out. So he it was never published and then he did finally publish something 15 years later so quite a long time afterward and so he's trying to in this talk he's trying to give a feel for what he was trying to say in 1971 plus with some updates so kind of an oddball that we haven't seen something like that yet where it's actually from much later. Okay, we're going to get into it in a moment, but before we do, I want to talk about my new book, Grokking Simplicity. Look, I've even got the t-shirt on if you're watching the video. Grokking Simplicity is all about functional programming. It is for people with who know uh, at least one programming language and have a couple years, maybe three years of experience, um, you know, working on commercial software and know some of the pitfalls in it. Um, talks about functional programming. It is um, what I hope to, I hope it is a book that starts a conversation, uh, a discussion in the literature uh, for commercial software. There's a lot of academic books on functional programming, but I think we need to start talking about how it applies in the industry. So please go check it out. It's available on manning.com and also amazon.com and, and probably other stores, but I'm not aware of where else it is. So uh, I'd love to hear what you think about it. Please leave a review if you like it. Tell your friends and thank you for buying it. Okay, I usually read from the uh, biography. Uh, I'll, I'll read a couple things. Uh, I didn't find the biography to be that insightful, but there are some facts that I like to look at. So he was born in 1927 in Boston. And this, he's about eight years older than the last, uh, no, uh, not Nobel Turing laureate, um, who was born in 1919. So sort of, you know, the next generation, right? Like he could have had that person as a, his PhD advisor or something. Um, he was a mathematician and he, I look at him, uh, mainly as like a logician, like trying to find a logic that was appropriate for using on a machine to reason about the world in the way that 
we we humans can make judgments about how the world must be or we can plan some set of actions to make something happen uh he was you know for instance he he uses the example of um stacking blocks like oh if you want to get block b on top of block c first you have to take block a off of it and then move this over here and take this out of the box and then put it on top there's all these actions you have to take in order to uh to to make the situation the way you want it and computers are bad at reasoning about that so his his talk is mostly about that it's about all these systems of logic trying to solve this problem of generality um it's easy to construct a very small logical system that is consistent that can solve tiny little problems but then you start introducing new ideas into it and it quickly explodes it's it's uh it's not a scalable solution um he has worked at Massachusetts Institute of Technology at Stanford uh he's worked with Marvin Minsky he's the inventor of the term artificial intelligence very early in the field uh and he also has worked with um did i say Marvin Minsky he also is the inventor of lisp uh and the the biography i didn't know this but the biography says something uh interesting that 16 turing award winners uh have been given to our our sorry 16 turing awards have been given to people who have been affiliated with the stanford ai lab which is uh the um project that McCarthy started. So it talks a lot about all the students that came under him and that this this is kind of a big part of his legacy. He's the first person to write a computer chess program, you know, very early in artificial intelligence, a very important figure in computer science. Um another thing that's not mentioned in here is that he was instrumental in getting the if then else statement put into algol so uh thanks thank you uh for doing that uh before they would have done some kind of go to and he was in favor of something more structured and of course now if then else is common in in basically all programming languages okay uh so let's get into the turing award lecture itself like i said it's the on the top of the page it says the 1971 turing award lecture but he actually didn't write this until 1986 um he i i i mean i'm inferring i'm presuming that he gave the talk in 1971 and he was trying to um summarize this idea that of generality in artificial intelligence uh and couldn't really do it and didn't like the way his lecture turned out and um then i guess <laughs> he like you know 10 or 15 years later he decided oh i guess i better finally write that up 
and so they allowed him to publish this uh, 15 years later. Okay. Um, it, it tries to tries to summarize the approaches that have been attempted in the past to deal with this problem of generality. Uh, the problem of generality uh, was not was not well understood. Um, they knew that it was a problem, but they did not understand. So this is the thing I read at the beginning. I'll just start. It was obvious in 1971 and even in 1958 that AI programs suffered from a lack of generality. It is still obvious, and now there are many more details. Okay, remember, this was written in 1986. So... Basically, for 30 years, they've been trying to solve this problem. Uh, also, I want to say I, I have so much to say on this, but uh, so I have a master's degree in, and I studied artificial intelligence, and so I have thought about a lot of these problems, uh, you know, even like decades after this was published. And um, there's also been like this, resurgence in the last 20 years of artificial intelligence, no, not even 20 years, let's say 10 years uh, less in artificial intelligence and um, more of a neural net uh, machine learning approach. Uh, and so there's, there's just um, a lot more happening going on than what was happening back then. Um, so there's a lot to say. And so I'm going to try to bring my understanding to the field. Unfortunately, a lot of this kind of seems, the stuff that he's going to talk about, um, if you've done any reading on it at all, is going to seem naive, at least, at least from our perspective now. But the reason it seems naive is because by doing this investigation, that artificial intelligence, the, the field of artificial intelligence was doing, trying to do stuff in a computer that normally only people can do, they brought up a lot of problems with the way we perceived ourselves and how we thought we you know, made sense of the world. And so this is an ongoing process, and the effect that artificial intelligence has had on cognitive science, on psychology, on neuroscience is profound. And um, looking back at it, it often seems like, wow, people were really, really had no idea about how we thought. And it's true that they, they discovered it. They, they had all these challenges. Like we think we're doing, you know, we think chess is like this really hard thing, but it's actually one of the easiest things we do for a computer to solve. Um, okay, so let's, uh, I, I hope to interject with like lots of little stories and stuff um, because it's something, uh, the problem is I might forget them because to me, I've lived in it so long, I often forget that it's not common knowledge. Okay, I'm just going to get started. Let's go. All right, the first gross, gross symptom uh, of this lack of generality is that a small addition to the idea of a program often involves a complete rewrite beginning with the data structures. Some progress has been made in modularizing data structures, 
but small modifications of the search strategies are even less likely to be accomplished without rewriting. Okay, so he's talking about how um, in, in we're, when we're dealing with stuff in the world, we're kind of like always learning new little facts, little things about what's going on. And these are small changes, but in software, it often requires you to just start over from the data structures, like the basic ideas that you've got encoded in your program. And so we need to modularize this uh, to, to, so that we don't have to keep changing our data structures at least. Um, but then of course you got different data structures. You're going to need search strategies that are different because you know, one, uh, search strategy that works on this data structure is not efficient. Um, so you need one that works on the new data structure. It's not, it's not an easy problem. Another symptom is that no one knows how to make a general database of common sense knowledge that could be used by any program that needed the knowledge. We don't know how to just put facts of common sense knowledge, you know, birds fly, um, objects fall when you release them, all that kind of like little stuff that every, like even, you know, five-year-olds know. Um, we, we don't know how to put that into a database and make it useful. When we take the logic approach to AI, lack of generality shows up in that the axioms we devise to express common sense knowledge are too restricted in their applicability for a general common sense database. In my opinion, getting a language for expressing general common sense knowledge for inclusion in a general database is the key problem of generality in AI. Okay, so this is 1986, remember, and he's making this strong claim that we need a language to express general common sense knowledge, and we want to put that into a database. And that is the key problem. And that, you know, if we solve that problem, we'll unlock the next wave of problems, the next, you know, of things that next challenges on the way to generality in AI. Now, uh, you know, what is this? 35 years later, um, we do have some common sense databases. There's a thing called Psyc, C-Y-K, uh, C-Y-C, that someone had just been writing, you know, they hired a team, they were just writing common sense statements uh, into a database. And th with the idea that when you hit a certain quantity of them, then there will just be a, a qualitative change in the kinds of reasoning you can do. Uh, it's unclear at this point whether that's actually helpful. There are uh, attempts at reading, um, basically reading everything, reading books, Wikipedia, web pages, and trying to get these facts out, um, you know, not not have a human involved in getting the facts out, but getting them out automatically. Uh, and it's just not clear that that's going to lead anywhere. Um, you know, once you have them, you have to represent them. And that's what he's talking about here. And in a language, you have to be able to 
write them down in some format that's convenient and efficient for search. And then you do this big search with inference and stuff. And so the engine that infers over these statements would also need to be devised, right? It's not clear that that's going to help at this point in 2021. Okay, but he's going to go over the problems, and I think it's very useful to understand this problem uh, more deeply. Friedberg discussed a completely general way of representing behavior and provided a way of learning to improve it. Namely, the behavior is represented by a computer program, and learning is accomplished by making random modifications to the program and testing the modified program. The Friedberg approach was successful in learning only how to move a single bit from one memory cell to another. Okay, so just imagine, uh, this was like back in 58, 59. Uh, you have this program that can solve some problem, right? And you want it to learn to do it. Uh, you want to improve and want, you want to make it better. So you just like make random changes to the program and like imagine this is in machine code and you just like change some bytes and then run it and see if it's better. Uh, very naive approach, um, but you know, you gotta try those <laughs> just in case they work. Uh, it was shown by Simon to be inferior to testing each program thoroughly and completely scrapping any program that wasn't perfect. No one seems to have attempted to follow up the idea of learning by modifying whole programs. So it didn't work. The defect of the Friedberg approach is that while representing behaviors by programs is entirely general, because we know that you know, software is Turing complete, modifying behaviors by small modifications to the programs is very special. Okay, so you're trying to make this general change uh, and, uh, or this, you're, you're trying to solve the problem in general of being able to learn any new behavior just by these like random mutations and selection. Um, but you want some particular thing. <laughs> you wanted to learn some particular thing and random and particular don't really go well together. A small conceptual modification to a behavior is usually not represented by a small modification to the program, especially if machine language programs are used, and any one small modification to the text of a program is considered as likely as any other. While Friedberg's problem was learning from experience, all schemes for representing knowledge by program suffer from similar difficulties when the object is to combine disparate knowledge or to make programs that modify knowledge. Okay, it didn't work. It was, you know, we needed to try it, but, um, you know, there's, there was a, at a time, at the time, uh, the notion that, hey, we have this new thing called programs that seem to have at least the potential for um, solving any problem, right? And it requires human ingenuity to craft the solution as a program, to write the program. But 
so far, you know, any program we've attempted has either been solved or we could see how we could do it if we had more resources, bigger RAM, more, you know, faster processing, but like we just can't do it yet or take more too much time to write the program. So plus that with the the church touring thesis about you know this universality of touring and that this of the touring machine and this was it this is all we needed to to do any kind of computation you know this sense that we have this thing that's universal now can't we just make small changes to this program and it'll learn new behavior turns out that uh, representation matters, right? He talks about this before, that it's about the language you need to express the statements. And uh, machine code, is, it, even though it's universal, is not the best way to express this kind of knowledge. Okay. Alan Newell, Herbert Simon, and their colleagues first proposed the general problem solver in 1957. The initial idea was to represent problems of some general class as problems of transforming one expression into another by means of a set of allowed rules. In my opinion, GPS was unsuccessful as a general problem solver because problems don't take this form in general. <laughs> and because most of the knowledge needed for problem solving and achieving goals is not simply representable in the form of rules for transforming expression. GPS was the first system to separate, oh, however, GPS was the first system to separate the problem solving structure of goals and sub goals from the particular domain. Okay, so GPS was an interesting attempt. Uh, Herb Simon, uh, and Herb Simon, very interesting guy. Um, he won the Turing Award and the Nobel Prize. Uh, Herb Simon was the guy who came up with the, the, the notion of satisficing, that humans don't optimize, they satisfice. Uh, and, and he won the Nobel Prize in economics for that. Um, so... We'll get to him when we get to his award, uh, but he was solving this problem of the, of generality by having these um, taking expressions and having transformation rules that applied to expressions. So it would kind of pattern match on the expression and say, well, if if this is true, then these other things must also be true. And you have this huge set of tra of allowed transformation rules, and you just keep applying them uh, recursively and you should be able to generate basically uh, you know giving enough time all true statements that that derive from that rule and the problem was that these transformations are not enough most problems are not solved by just simple transformations you need more ability to uh, well he'll get into this but you need this ability of having variables and and talking about things in general and not just specifics. Um, but he says that it's important um, because it separated the idea of of a uh, like an engine for problem solving. 
that was separate from the domain. All right, now he's going to talk about production systems. So he just is kind of summarizing like all these attempts and where they failed. Okay, production systems represent knowledge in the form of facts and rules. Unlike logic-based systems, these facts contain no variables or quantifiers. New facts are produced by inference, observation, and user input. The result of a production system pattern match is a substitution of constants for variables in the pattern part of the rule. Consequently, production systems do not infer general propositions. Again, we're talking about the generality problem. They can't learn like these general problems. They have to work on particulars. You know, so for instance, you could you could have it generate like move block C because it's on top of, you know, C is on top of B and you want to move B, so you have to move C first. Move it off of B. But it can't figure out in general the rule. Hey, if something is on top of it, if you want to move a thing, so that's a variable. If you want to move a thing and there's something on top of it, move the thing that's on top first. Like that's a general rule and it can't ever deduce that. So he has another example. For example, consider the definition that a container is sterile if it is sealed against entry by bacteria and all the bacteria in it are dead. A production system or a logic program can only use this fact by substituting particular bacteria for the variables. Thus, it cannot reason that heating a sealed container will sterilize it given that a heated bacterium dies because it cannot reason about the unenumerated set of bacteria in the container. So he's going to talk about that more later. He's going to bring up the same example later. So like just to explain again it can only reason about basically you know you could say it like this it can reason about one bacterium at a time heating heating x will kill it if x is a bacterium okay but it can't say oh therefore if i heat this dish all the bacteria in it are going to die and so i should heat the whole dish it can't, it can't make that leap to a set of bacteria that are contained in it. Something has to like list out all the bacteria in it. And then it can decide, ah, yes, there are no more bacteria because I've heated each one. Representing knowledge in logic. It seemed to me in 1958 that small modifications in behavior are most often representable as small modifications in beliefs about the world. And this requires a system that represents beliefs explicitly. The 1960 idea for increasing generality was to use logic to express facts in a way independent of the way the facts might subsequently be used. Okay, I wanna pause here. Um, remember, he's a mathematician, he's a logician, and so he's approaching this as, you know, we will have some um, statement of fact about the world, and we'll use that in different ways. So we're not making a production rule, which was the last section we talked about, that 
that has a very specific uh, use, like to you know to move this block from here to there. You know, it, it's much more general. Like moving a block changes its location, and that's a declarative statement about the world, right? Or heating. Uh, if A is a bacterium, so for all A, if A is a bacterium, we uh, heating it will kill it. Then that is a statement about the world. It's not a statement about any particular bacterium. It seemed then, and still seems, that humans communicate mainly in declarative sentences rather than in programming languages for good objective reasons that will apply whether the communicator is a human, a creature from Alpha Centauri, or a computer program. So he's, he's making a, a claim about the universality of the usefulness of this, that speaking in declarative sentences uh, is more useful than describing a program, right? So... Um, Just as an example, I, I know that when I was a kid, we had this exercise of having to describe how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So you had to give all these instructions, you know, place the jar on the table, open the jar by twisting the lid counterclockwise, uh, open the drawer, find a knife, take it out, close the drawer. And if you forgot, and then the teacher would enact it. Right. And so if you forgot a step, like your program would have a bug and the teacher could not finish the sandwich. Um, but you so you could describe making a peanut butter sandwich that way. Or you could have a declarative statement like a peanut butter sandwich is two slices of bread with a layer of peanut butter between them. And that is, I mean, that might not be the best way to represent it, but if you say it like that, the person on the other side that's hearing this statement is an intelligent person, it's an intel, you know, has an intelligence, and can figure out all the steps themselves of how to make the sandwich, right? I mean, it reminds me of the difference between American-style recipes which are very step-by-step -step, uh, versus French-style recipes, which are like a little paragraph about like what's in it, <laughs> you know? Uh, I think it's, it's really telling that they, the French-style recipe um, is, I mean, it's, it's crazy looking at the difference because they are very different. You have to know a lot more about cooking to, to do the French-style recipe, whereas the American style is made for someone who, you know, they know how to turn on a stove, but they don't, they don't know how to saute an onion, you know? So there's like things you can assume that the Americans know, but there's things you can't. Whereas in the French, they assume a lot more knowledge um, about, about what's going on. You know, they'll say like, um, this is a dish uh, of... Um, Oh, I mean, it'll even say like, cook sautéed onions, carrots, potatoes, and etc. together in a in a pot until tender. Uh, serve in a bowl. 
right? It's like that that general of a statement of of um, of a recipe. Whereas in the American, it would be like a whole page, and it would say like one medium onion, finely chopped, right? And then so then it'll say like heat the pan to on medium heat, add oil to the pan, put the onion in the pan and stir occasionally until the uh, onion is translucent. Like it'll, I mean, it's just the details that you have to write in there are crazy. Um, but if you can assume knowledge on the other side, like you can assume that the, the, the agent on the other side can do some deductive reasoning and has uh, a similar set of knowledge and experience and skills in the world that the, the uh, declarative sentences are much better for for communication and for getting things done because it can it can work in multiple situations okay let me let me continue the advantage of declarative information is one of generality the fact that when two objects collide they make a noise may be used in particular situations to make a noise, to avoid making a noise, to explain a noise, or to explain the absence of noise. Okay, so in theory, the idea is that I can write one statement that can be used for all these different situations. It is a, it is a true statement. It is generally true. And so I can save time as the programmer because I'm writing just one statement and uh, the computer can use it for multiple situations. Once one has decided to build an AI system that represents information declaratively, one still has to decide what kind of declarative language to allow. Okay, so now you have this new problem of writing a language that can express this. Every increase in expressive power carries a price in the required complexity of the reasoning and problem-solving programs. So you go from the simplest systems that are just like constant symbols, and then you add some predicate symbols and some variables, and now you're in first-order logic, and it's just really hard. Okay, so you, you need a, a much better engine for running these pro, uh, programs. So he talks about Prolog as kind of this local optimum. It's interesting because in 1971, Prolog didn't exist, but in 1986, it did. So uh, this is something that he could look back on. Um, all right, so he says, prologue represents a local optimum in this continuum because horn clauses are medium expressive but can be interpreted directly by a logical problem solver. One major limitation that is usually accepted is to limit the derivation of new facts to formulas without variables, that is to substitute constants for variables and then do propositional reasoning. It appears that most human daily activity involves only such reasoning. So people aren't doing science all the time when they're going about their day. They're not inferring, you know, uh, what 
what goes up must come down, which is like a universal statement with, with a universally quantified variable. Uh, they're just saying, if I drop this apple, it's going to hit the ground, right? And that, that's everything is, is instantiated, uh, to a sing to constants, right? This apple, that ground is going to fall. Okay. A prologue program can sterilize a container only by killing each bacterium individually and would require that some other part of the program successively generate the names of the bacteria. It cannot be used to discover or rationalize canning, sealing the container and then heating it to kill all the bacteria at once. Okay, so it has this same problem that it cannot generalize. And this is something that we do all the time. It's not science exactly, but we, we, can, we can infer that, like we can do these specific quantifications. Um, uh, I mean, like, like you can say stuff like all the people in the room, right? And there might be 20 people in the room and we don't have to like list them all. We can infer things from that um, in a way that might not be uh, well expressed in, in predicate logic. So if you say, or, you know, in, in like a universal quantum, like if, in logic, you would have to say for all people, if the person is in the room, then, you know, they heard me talk, right? So, this is the way you would express that in logic and notice that you have this for all this variable that's quantified over all people and then there's a conditional in there but when we say for all the people in the room you know all the people in the room heard me uh we might not be doing that uh we might just ha that might just be a shortcut right and then we have some kind of heuristic that's like were they in the room? Yes, no. Like, you know, it's not, it's not this thing that we're applying to all people and then, and then narrowing it with an if statement. Okay, That's, this is my interjection here. This isn't what he's saying. Okay, now I'll read from his paper. My own opinion is that reasoning and problem-solving programs will eventually have to allow the use the full use of quantifiers and sets and have strong enough control methods to use them without combinatorial explosion. Okay. Um, while the 1958 idea, the one of, of this logic, uh, was well received, few attempts were made to embody it in program in the immediately following years. I spent most of my time on what I regarded as preliminary projects, mainly LISP. My main reason for not attempting an implementation was that I wanted to learn how to express common sense knowledge and logic first. So we wanted to do the expression first before making the logic engine. And you know, you can see why, like as a logician himself, he could sit there and work out simple problems himself and know whether a language was expressive enough. Like, why should you write the engine first 
and then later learn, oh, this doesn't really do what I needed to do. It's much better to work out a few problems on a piece of paper, um, learn that, oh, there's some missing gap in this inference and we can't figure out why uh, these rules don't work. Oh, we need some universal quali quantifier here. That You know, that kind of thing. You can work it out before you make an engine to do the deduction. McCarthy and Hayes made the distinction between epistemological, ep nah, this is a hard word for me. Okay. Epistemological and heuristic aspects of the AI problem and asserted that generality is more easily studied. Uh, ep ep epistemologically. The distinction is that the epistemology is completed when the facts available have as a consequence that a certain strategy is appropriate to achieve the goal, whereas the heuristic problem involves the search that finds the appropriate strategy. Okay, so this is kind of what I was just saying, that there's, there's two problems. One is having the information encoded in the right way. Uh, that's the epistemology of it. And then there's the heuristic aspect, which is actually taking all that and doing a practical search to generate the desired knowledge, right? It's what I was talking about, where you could do it on paper just by working on the epistemology of it. Okay. The common sense information possessed by humans would be written as logical sentences and included in the database. So he's talking about his own work here, his own, you know, approaches. Any goal-seeking program could consult the database for the facts needed to decide how to achieve its goal, especially facts about the effects of actions. The much-studied example is the set of facts about the effects of a robot trying to move objects from one location to another. This led in the 1960s to the situation calculus, which was intended to provide a way of expressing the consequences of actions independent of the problem. Okay, so you have a database and you put a bunch of facts about it, uh, about the, the world in it, um, but you're especially putting facts about the consequences of actions. So this might be like if you, if you paint something, it changes its color, right? Something like that. Uh, and so he has this, like, some, it's not code, it's like a, a formula. S prime equals result of E and S. So you have a situation S, the current situation, some event E happens, and the result is a new situation S prime. Notice that the situation calculus applies only when it is reasonable to reason about discrete events, each of which results in a to new total situation. Continuous events and concurrent events are not covered. Now, I'm not going to read all the, the code that he has here, the axioms, um, but one thing that's clear is that you have to state quite a lot of stuff. Uh, 
So like the result of moving a thing that's at position X is uh, to Y uh, is that it is now in Y. Like that, you know, it's, it's things like that. The facts that were included in the axioms had to be delicately chosen in order to avoid the in introduction of contradictions arising from the failure to delete a sentence that wouldn't be true in the situation that resulted from an action. So it's very tedious. You have to say everything that's still true, all the things that are not true anymore, um, anything that has changed. You kind of had to rewrite the whole description of the situation in every rule. And if you added a new thing, like a new piece of information that was being tracked, so you had location and you had color and then you had um, some other, so you have those two things. You describe all the rules, like moving something doesn't change its color and painting something doesn't change its location, right? You say all that stuff. But now you add a new thing like it's rotation. So you, you can flip the blocks. Okay, so now you have to say flipping the block doesn't change its location or its color and, and changing and painting it changes its color, but not its location and not its orientation. So you like have to start describing everything that changes and not changes. It's, it's very hard. A problem with the situation calculus axioms is that they were again not general enough. This was the qualification problem. Putting an axiom in a common sense database asserting that birds can fly. Uh, clearly the axiom must be qualified in some way since penguins, dead birds, and birds whose feet are encased in concrete can't fly. All right, so he's talking, this is, he's describing this new problem called, that he's calling the qualification problem. Um, you can make a general statement like birds can fly. If you said that to a person, uh, they'd be like, yeah, sure, that's, that sounds right. But then you're like, ah, but what about dead birds? Huh? Did you think of that? And then you can say, huh? What about if I cut their wings off? Aha. Uh -huh. And so, so then you're like, well, but you didn't say that. You didn't say that this bird was like tied down or in a cage, you know? Um, and so he needed to invent this new thing because you can always come up with all these exceptions. Formalized non-monotonic reasoning provides a formal way of saying that a bird can fly unless there is an abnormal circumstance and of reasoning that only the abnormal circumstances whose existence follows from the facts being taken into account will be considered. All right, so he's trying to formalize this thing that people do. If I say birds, you know, birds can fly. Uh, and then later I tell you, and so you're like, yes, that's, that's right. And then I say, ah, but what about a penguin? And you say, well, you didn't, you didn't say penguins. Penguins are kind of special. You know, most birds can fly. Penguins are special. So you, you don't have to list all of the exceptions. Um, 
and this um this he's trying to formalize this and so anything like if you're describing a situation if you leave out all the, you, you have to you have to make it possible to leave out the details because you can't describe everything about the situation and if you leave out a detail like it's a penguin that's okay you're just going to assume it's not a penguin right you're going to assume that the birds can fly it's true and you don't have to know all the details of its wings and whether it's healthy and whether it's alive and whether you know you can leave that stuff out and the reasoning can continue and infer the you know the sort of general case without the exceptions the frame problem is another problem that he's going to describe the frame problem occurs when there are several actions available each of which changes certain features of the situation. Somehow it is necessary to say that an action changes only the features of the situation to which it directly refers. When there is a fixed set of actions and features, it can be explicitly stated which features are unchanged by an action, even though it may take a lot of axioms. If additional features of situations and additional actions may be added to the database, we face the problem that the axiomatization of an action is never completed. Okay, so let me explain this problem here. This is the frame problem. Other uh, researchers have defined it differently. It's kind of similar, but this is his, he was first, and so he's, he's defining it how he defined it. Um, so you wanna make this database. And we, we talked about this before. If you put, you know, painting a block changes its color. Uh, you also have to describe like, well, it does not change its location. It does not change its orientation. Uh, and so you, so let's say you have a complete set of all that. It's all well described. And now you add another variable in there that the system is keeping track of. You have to go through all your rules and add this. And of course your rules are growing because you're adding this new variable that can change. And so you're, you're just increasing the amount of stuff you have to put in the database with each addition of a thing. Obviously not scalable, uh, you'd never finish. So you need like a kind of meta rule that says, well, if I don't mention location, it's not gonna change. Just use the same location as before. Um, if I mention paint and the paint changes, well, then it changes. But if I don't mention paint, it doesn't change. Or the color, right? So we need some way of solving this frame problem. Okay. So he's got the situation calculus. He's showing um, that you you know you have your your statements, your axioms become a lot less wordy because you have this thing called ab aspect, um, and, and it's just a, a way of describing like. Um, like there's a bunch of stuff that's not that's there that's not changing right all right so 
This treats the qualification problem because any number of conditions that may be imagined as preventing moving or painting can be added later and asserted to imply the corresponding ab aspect. It treats the frame problem in that we don't have to say that moving doesn't affect colors and painting location. So now when you add a new axiom and a new like thing that can change about the situation, you don't have to change all your existing rules. That's very important. All right, but even with formalized non-monotonic reasoning, the general common sense database still seems elusive. The problem is writing axioms that satisfy our notions of incorporating the general facts about a phenomenon. Whenever we tentatively decide on some axioms, we are able to think of situations in which they don't apply and a generalization is called for. Moreover, the difficulties that are thought of are often ad hoc, like that of the bird with its feet encased in concrete. Ad hoc meaning you don't have a situ you don't have a rule. Like if you say all birds can fly and you say bird A has its feet encased in concrete, like does the system have a um a way of representing that that means he's too heavy to fly? Like you know this is another you know you, now you need a whole bunch more uh a whole bunch more statements and axioms in your database uh and so it's just exploding the size of the database needed um i want to interject here at this point um because i think we've gotten enough of a sense it's we're almost at the end now but we're getting we have a real sense of the the difficulty of this logical approach um back when ai started there was a real thought that um you know sort of the the uh, this is a caricature it's a it's a caricature of what was thought at the time but it seems naive now so it's hard to describe it without making a it seem so cartoonish but the idea was sort of smart people make reason like reason through situations and logic is is something that smart people have learned how to do and so there must and and it seems to be able to describe all these situations and so therefore a machine machines can do this kind of basic logic because it's very formal so that might be a good way to make a computer be able to think and reason that thinking is basically reason right i i think that that characterizes it well thinking is reason and you look at stuff like you know another uh, another caricature was like well if we're trying to make intelligence intelligent people can play good chess like you have to be pretty intelligent to play chess so let's make a computer who can play chess 
And that way we will be simulating intelligence, right? Um, on the flip side, they thought the stuff like walking and uh, manipulating blocks with a robot, uh, you know, using a camera was kind of like a simple problem. Like it must be easy because even a two-year-old can do that. Um, and it turns out that that was exactly backwards. The stuff that a two-year-old can do turns out to still be pretty hard. Uh, you know, we're making good strides these days in it just because we have a lot more experience with it and, and faster computers. But it turns out that that stuff that two-year-olds can do is actually the hardest stuff. Two-year-olds can recognize shapes and uh, people and can talk about it and, and make simple statements about the world. They can run around. They can jump and climb. Like, in, in unknown situations, like, there's all this stuff that's really hard. And we. this is the kind of thing that AI was discovering. Like, hey, wait a second. We thought chess was hard because it's hard for people. You know, it takes a lot of study to become good at chess, a lot of practice, but anybody can learn to walk. Uh, but it turns out it's, it's the opposite, that the, the current best explanation for it is that Actually, walking is something that took millions of years to evolve. And uh, this kind of reasoning that we do with our forebrain is actually like a recent invention, uh, evolutionarily speaking, a recent uh, emergent phenomenon. And uh, it's hard for us because it's so recent right, that it's not, it hasn't had enough time to really get well-developed. Um, and we also seem to be one of the only species that can do it. Uh, some, you know, dogs can, can solve problems, monkeys can solve problems, dolphins can solve problems, but it's, you know, it's a handful of species that can do that. And then we have this other ability of being able to kind of reason in in more general terms like we are able to uh, come up with physical systems of physical laws that have predictive power that we we can use to to, to build you know spaceships and stuff uh, and so all of that is the same thing that people thought like oh that's the hard thing that's intelligence um, but actually that stuff is fairly easy for the machine to do because it is so formal. Like the best logic that you do is very formal. Uh, and, um, I mean, that, at least at the time, that's what was thought. And, uh, this easy stuff, things that even like non-intelligent people can do, uh, you know, animals do it, like a, a bird can stand on two legs, like it's not, and walk. It doesn't seem to be that hard, but that is actually um, something that's very hard to do uh, with a kind of mechanical approach to, to um, 
you're not using logic. Let's put it that way. You're not using logic to walk down the street. Um, and so this is very similar to this chess idea. And we're, we're now at a place where we do have walking robots and they are not doing logic and we know that. And where we have robots that can, or computer programs that can recognize faces and they're not doing logic. And so there's kind of this monkey wrench that's been thrown into this approach in general that, that maybe we're not even doing logic when we're when we are doing logic <laughs> right like we might use logic to write down a proof uh so that we can communicate it and have it formally verified by somebody else uh but that's very hard for us even the best logicians are have to have a lot of concentration they need to have the door closed and and quiet and they, they need to really focus. It takes all of our brain power to do that. Meanwhile, we can make plans to, you know, go to the grocery store and like we can plan a vacation and we can do all this stuff. And it does not seem to take all that skill. So there must be something else we're doing besides logic. Okay, so this is this is a perspective of a of a grad student in the early 2000s like looking back on this time that we are just not we're not doing logic and it seems like it seems like there there's logic in it but all these problems that he's talking about the frame problem the the qualification problem uh these are things that you deal with in logic but they're not they're not problems that we're having, right? They're that when we're talking, we know what we mean. And so I, I, I think in 1986, they were still very optimistic about logic and having databases of, we just need more facts, more facts. And I, I think that we know that it is not the case. I mean, obviously you need the system to know about the world, but it's not gonna be in logic. You know, if, if you have a two-year-old and you tell it, like, make it so that B is on top of A, like, they're not doing a math problem. Um, they have some other system that maybe it's even a special purpose system of object configuration gen engine that just knows, oh, move this, move that, it's done right and it's a special purpose piece of hardware in our brains that knows how to reason about that and can do it in like it feels intuitive because it's not conscious uh we are not doing logic we're not working out well if a is on b and b is on c then we have to move c to b on you know we don't we're not doing that okay so reification Reasoning about knowledge, belief, or goals requires extensions of the domain of objects reasoned about. Sentences like precedes, so we're trying to make a statement about um, what has to be done first, right? So you're saying 
block two being on block three precedes block one being on block two. So, you know, you're trying to stack blocks in a certain order. You have to do them in the right order. And so you make a logical statement that says, this situation has to precede that situation. On block one, block two has to be regarded as an object in the first order language. This process of making objects out of sentences and other entities is called reification. Okay, so now you, he's realizing that for certain situations, uh, you need to start talking about knowledge itself. You need axioms about the axioms. So you're, this is reification. Okay, so now we're going to talk about context and making it formal. Whenever we write an axiom, a critic can say that the axiom is true only in a certain context. With a little ingenuity, the critic can usually devise a more general context in which the precise form of the axiom doesn't hold. Consider the sentence, the book is on the table. The critic may propose to haggle about the precise meaning of on, inventing difficulties about what can be between the book and the table, or about how much gravity there has to be in a spacecraft in order to use the word on. Thus we encounter Socratic puzzles over what the concepts mean in complete generality and encounter examples that never arise in life. There simply isn't a most general context. I'm going to describe the, this problem a little bit better. Um, and then I'm going to talk about my own personal experience uh, with reasoning. So uh, you have, you know, you have this sentence, the book is on the table. And you can really start to nitpick. What does on mean? Because what if the book is on a piece of paper that's on the table? Does that still count? And how do you represent that? And like, what if the book is on a, a, a box that's on the table? Is the book on the table still? If the book is floating above the table. There's like somehow some kind of, I don't know, it's like suspended from the ceiling. It's like, is that on the table? What's the difference between a column of air between the book and the table and the box? being right so there's 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 a real problem and you can go to this higher context like well what if you don't have gravity can the, like the book is touching the table but there's no up or down so like you could say the table is on the book and that should be acceptable too right um this is this this is a problem you get in in logic where you're trying to define context and of course universal statements and then you move to a new context and your universal statements don't apply so much anymore or you get weird results you get weird you know statements that the system says must be true and uh it's it's a problem so from my personal experience um if i've been doing a lot of programming let's say i i, I 
woke up early and I started programming early in the day and then programmed all through the day in the afternoon, I often, because I've been dealing with the computer that it requires such pedantic specificity to, to work with, I cannot reason on a human level anymore. Uh, a friend will say something and I will nitpick it. Well, do you mean da 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 or do you mean that this? Like that's not really the precise way to say it, and like, and I have to apologize to them. And I say, wait, I'm sorry. Like, I know what you mean. <laughs> Don't worry about being so precise. I've just been dealing with a computer all day. So there must be some something else happening in our brains, uh, in our minds that allows us to reason. Uh, without being quite so precise and somehow short-circuit all these logical puzzles, what he calls Socratic puzzles, about the world. Um, that we, even if our friends make, you know, precision errors in their sentences, we know what they mean. We can, we can work around it. And I think this is this is one this is like showing that like what we're doing truly is not a pure logic, right? There are approaches that try to use like society of mind, like Marvin Minsky's, where instead of having one monotonic, um, let's call it monolithic. Uh, logic engine and then this huge database of facts that the engine can use to infer things maybe we have a, a large number of small special purpose engines each with uh, maybe a different approach to the problem and then there might also be systems that can choose between those other subsystems uh, and which which subsystem would have a useful answer to this problem at this time, and they're activated at different times by different you know hormonal states. If we're stressed, we might be using this. If we're more relaxed and focused, we'll be using this other subsystem. You know, there's this approach, which kind of kicks the problem down the road, but it shows that maybe a single big logic engine is not always is not the only solution to the problem that maybe you could have a small logic engine with that runs on a small number of facts but that's very expensive and slow so we're going to try to do it with some heuristics first and try to find the pro uh, solve the problem uh in a satisficing kind of way um you know i mentioned before that maybe uh we have a special purpose spatial reasoning system subsystem in our brains that can uh that can solve these little like cube on cube problems like how to how to move the cubes so that uh you know they're properly stacked in the right order like we can solve these problems without resorting to this general purpose problem and there's even nowadays doubts 
and good arguments for the fact that we aren't general. We don't have general purpose. We just have, we can't even imagine the purposes and the contexts in which we don't operate all the time. And that this is kind of the, the, the way that like say scientific revolutions happen with a total paradigm shift and it requires uh, thinking in a new context that no one had imagined before. No one knew how to do the reasoning in that new context. Uh, so this is, this is one of those things where we assume that we're better than we are, we're, that we're more intelligent than we are, and um, we're trying to make the computer be as intelligent as we imagine we are, but we're not that intelligent. <laughs> we're not that good. You know, it's at, you know, or maybe our definition of intelligence is wrong, that we don't need to be so smart all uh, in everything we do. Um, we can rely on habit. We can rely on culture to like give us pat answers to problems with no with like arbitrary you know no no optimal solution they we just pick an arbitrary one that seems to work and everyone agrees on and we just work with that we don't need to solve a logic problem with these socratic problems all the time okay but he's still trying to formalize this idea of context Humans find it useful to say the book is on the table, omitting reference to time and precise identifications of what book and what table. This problem of how general to be arises, whether the general common sense knowledge is expressed in logic, in program, or in some other formalism. A possible way out involves formalizing the notion of context and combining it with the circumscription method of non-monotonic reasoning. Okay, so this is kind of where he's leaving it off, and um, I assume that that means that this is what he was working on in 1986, or this was at least the approach he thought was the most promising. Um, of course, he doesn't really conclude. It just stops, really. Uh, and there you go. That's the end. Uh, I, I think that, um, I mean, I think I've, I've hashed it out pretty well. Uh, this problem of AI, of generality in AI, uh, has caused us to think a lot about ourselves and what we do when we're thinking, you know, there's, a much better understanding in our of our psychology now uh, and all the biases that we have and that those biases um, served an evolutionary purpose so whenever we uh, when, whenever I learn or I read about a, a bias that I hadn't heard about before there's always an explanation of like why would this be useful you know it's obviously not optimal but why is it useful and it's, it's probably a case where we stumbled on, on a 
or evolution optimized for something like energy conservation uh, so that we would be more likely to survive to procreate and you know energy being a scarce resource and so we make all these assumptions and you know we have for instance um, loss aversion like why would we want loss aversion well you know it might be that you you might you might hold on to something that you have longer than is wise because in that most of the time you're going to get to keep it most of the time there's these weird situations that you might get in where you would be better off like you might lose your life if you don't drop the thing you have but you want to hold on to it and the you know because those situations are so rare and so nature you know natural selection evolution has found some balance between the you know dropping what you have to conserve something else versus holding on to what you have uh, in the hopes that you'll get to keep it um so it's found a balance that often people often talk about situations and certainly in the modern world where this loss aversion doesn't make sense you know for you know for instance to an economist earning ten dollars is kind of the same as saving ten dollars you, you know the situation is both situ so you spend the ten dollars and then you earn ten dollars or you just save the ten dollars in to an economist is like the same right like yeah the end situation is the same but to a person it feels a lot different from like losing that ten dollars that you earned that you spent time earning it feels different from gaining another ten um in a world of scarcity where a new ten dollars might not come or a new you know i'm trying to think of like a new a new tree full of berries right like you might not find a new tree full of berries. Hold on to the one you have. Like that seems to make a lot of sense. Anyway, what I'm trying to get at is our reasoning is not, is not optimal. And it might not even be, um, it might not even be logical. Like it's not logical with like finely tuned parameters. It's not logic. It's, it's stuff like don't let go. Hold on to stuff. Um, and defend what you have, right? And and that defend what you have is not like like a computer printout, like calculation detects that seventy percent chance that you will lose what you, you know. It's not like that. It's like you f you feel territorial. That's a hormonal flush that you get. So it's not even a it's not reason. Right. I mean, later you might make up a reason why you did that. Oh, I thought I would be able to win in the fight if I defended it. Like you, you make that up. But no, you just had a flush of hormones that made you want to keep this thing and defend it against intruders. Um, so I think that that this AI and like the, you know, people talking about like, oh, AI hasn't been successful. It has been successful. It has posed questions about reasoning about 
intelligence that has been fruitful. It's led to a lot of the development of, I mean, computer science in general. Um, we, we could list, you know, programming languages, um, data structures, databases. You know, SQL was, because it's like a logic language, it was once considered AI, right? But now that it works and it's like, you know, open source software that any, you know, people take for granted, they forget that it comes from the AI world. Um, but also, I think more fruitful is AI has asked questions, has forced us to ask questions about ourselves. And we've learned so much about who we are as a species, what intelligence is, what is the nature of intelligence, and how could we possibly work? Uh, you know, how do we do what we do? And I think that this is, uh, this is the real contribution of artificial intelligence is asking these really profound, deep questions. And you look back at 1986, it seems naive, but it's only because of these questions asked in 1986 that we have our current understanding. And so it's, it's very important. Whew, okay. Uh, thank you so much uh, for listening. Please tell your friends if you like this episode. Uh, you can always subscribe and you'll get the new ones. Um, and I'm going to continue with these Turing Award winners. I, I find it very, uh, I don't know, I'm learning a lot. Let's put it that way. Edifying. All right. My name is Eric Normand. This has been a Turing Award uh, reading, a Turing Award lecture reading, John McCarthy. Uh, thank you for being there. And as always, rock on.